As weather gets and stays warmer, uh, we will be looking to probably move things earlier in the day. It's a good thing we're meeting to catch the hottest part of the day uh, through the spring, and then we get burned today. But uh, even I think next week's supposed to cool off a little bit next weekend. But um, but we will keep an eye on that and do our best to uh, better accommodate. But it's not snowing, so uh, we have that to be thankful for. Um, I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we continue through uh, the book, we're moving into now chapter 3. And I'd like to read our text before we begin. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read through to verse 15. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Uh, We have been reminded, of course, continually throughout Ecclesiastes so far, about how frustrating life can be. How fleeting it can be, seemingly at times pointless even. We've been reminded how limited we are as human beings. And in many ways, these verses really just continue this theme, but also this ray of light that we noted at the end of chapter 2 also continues to break through this uh, frustration, this futility, to give us some hope to begin to unfold some of the answer that Solomon is going to give us all throughout this book. These verses teach us that the various seasons of life that come our way are often inexplainable to us beyond our understanding and outside of our control. And yet behind 
all of that stands the creator whose ways are immutable. They're unchangeable. This teaches us that coming to grips with our own finiteness and God's sovereignty frees us to live our lives as God intends in the fear of him. I have said that one of the things that Ecclesiastes does is it re-enthrones God, so to speak. Uh, It reminds us of his greatness, of who he is, and our limitations, our finiteness. This is a major part of what this book does for us. And we need this reminder. We need this. We need to be reminded of our place in this world and of God's place in this world or outside of this world, really, but in his actions in this world. We need to know where we fit, who God is. Because of this sinful tendency we have, and as humans have in general, to exalt man and to lower God. This is a problem, of course, that stretches back all the way to Adam and Eve. These verses remind us that coming to grips with our finiteness and God's sovereignty will free us to live our lives as God intends. So these verses are, again, reminding us of our place and God's rightful place and the importance of coming to grips with this reality, who God is, who we are in his world, is an important part of living life as God intends us to live it in the fear of him. So the outline for this sermon is going to be four points. We're going to begin by looking at the seasons of life, which we see in verses one to eight seasons of life, then the, the desire for more, as Solomon tells us about in verses nine to 11. And thirdly, the rightful place of man in verses 12 to 13. And then the rightful place of God in verses 14 to 15. So let's begin with the seasons of life. Verse 1, Solomon tells us, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is how it begins. And then in verse 2, he starts uh, in Uh, poetic fashion in poetic form to list out some of these different seasons that men and women experience. And he does this by giving 14 pairs of opposites. And they're meant to remind us of uh, the full range of experience that we go through in life. There's weeping on the one hand, there's laughter On the other hand, and there's every kind of emotional experience within those two poles. We're not, it's not either we're weeping or we're laughing. There's all matter of range within. And that's what he is drawing attention to these two ends and extremes and, and therefore everything that's in between as well. Using the ends of the spectrum to remind us of all that is between. So he continues or he begins these, uh, these, these pairs by saying there's a time to be born. And a time to die. There's there's a beginning and there's an end to all lives under the heaven in this fallen world. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. We know spring is the time to plant. Later in the summer and the fall is a time to pick up what you planted. There's a time to kill 
and a time to heal. We might think of the Ten Commandments and think, isn't where are we not supposed to kill? But uh, that should be understood. Not uh, do not kill as really as do not murder. It's forbidding murder. And of course, the hatred that would lead to murder, as Jesus makes clear. But God himself at different times in the Old Testament, in the name of justice, in the name of judgment, has commanded killing. Think of the Canaanites. God sent to be wiped out as a judgment against them for their sins after their uh, iniquities had been completed after many, many years in which he had been merciful to them and allowed them to remain on in their sin. As well, there's the various death penalties we find within the old covenant. He's also said Genesis chapter nine. Uh, That if a person sheds another person's blood, then their blood should be shed. God gives the death penalty there that he prescribes. And that's given to Noah after the flood and uh, remains. It remains in effect. That is just that God has said, if a man murders another, his blood should be shed. So there is a time, in fact, to kill But obviously we know there's a time to heal wounds. I think that's probably uh, fairly straightforward to us, the fact that there's a time to heal. But additionally, besides other people, I think we could apply this also to uh, farmers, to ranchers, to shepherds. If you think of a rancher with his cattle, he's trying to care for the cattle, keep it healthy, uh, protect it, help it to heal if it gets injured, to fatten it up for what? For the time to kill, right? For the day of slaughter to kill it and to eat it. So there's a time to kill and a time to heal. He continues, there's a time to break down and a time to build up. A home is built and at one time it's new and it's great. This building is fantastic and people rejoice in it. Fast forward however many years and it needs to be raised to the ground. It needs to be knocked down. It's time to start over. Verse four says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh time to mourn and a time to dance. Weeping and mourning are probably some of the most heavy emotions that human beings experience and go through. It's brought on by various types of trial, various types of of difficulty. On the other end of the spectrum is laughter and dancing. Some of the, you know, the result of some of the happiest and, and most joyful moments that we experience. Verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, probably uh, for building in mind. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Again, these two spectrums of embracing a friend, someone who is close to us, great to see them, closeness, intimacy, and a time when that is no longer appropriate, a time when that is not the right response to somebody, a very different situation. Uh, this can happen in different scenarios. I, one that comes to mind is welcoming brothers and sisters into fellowship, shaking, uh, Bible speaks of the holy kiss, a closeness and intimacy, fellowship, and then the church discipline as well when someone is removed and it's, it's no longer time for that sort of intimate fellowship and embracing. This, again, this range of, of experience we have. 
Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Think of Proverbs 26, which tells us on the one hand, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then this is followed up right afterwards with answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Uh, There is time to answer the fool. There's a time to speak. And then there's a time to have no more to do with talking with the fool and to walk away lest you engage in folly and become a fool yourself. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Verse 8, time to love and a time to hate a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time for war. There is a time for just war to be engaged in. I do not believe the Bible teaches uh, pacifist what pacifists say it does. Uh, There is a time for a nation to defend itself or to liberate another oppressed people. And of course, obviously, there's a time when that's not right, when it's right to lay arms down and enjoy peace. And so in all of these things, these contrasts, these different poles, we're reminded of the many varied seasons that we experience in life. And maybe as you read that, you think of some of those experiences that you have had. We can all identify, I trust, with Kind of all ends of this spectrum. It's a very, it's it's poetry. It's very kind of a beautiful and even moving way of summarizing the uh, life, really, and the the things that we experience and live through. These are words that are found in many places. These are uh, well-known words, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. You'll hear them at funerals. You'll hear them at Funerals of unbelievers as well, as believers. Uh, As Floyd reminded me a couple weeks ago, these are almost verbatim words to a a famous song from the 60s, a pop song, folk song. They're well-known words because they do very well describe and, and, and poetically put before us what life is like. And yet, While all of these seasons are true and it's a a nice read and it can even be moving, um, this text does not provide us with any sort of answer to any of the major questions of life. Perhaps one reason why uh, such a broad group of people seem to like these words. This really just explains, these are things we experience, and this text then raises some questions for us doesn't really provide answers. Implicit within this is the fact that you're not really in control of these seasons, ultimately. These are seasons you experience, yes, um, but you don't typically choose these things. They just come to you. Uh, You don't choose when and where you're going to be born. It just happened. Typically, we don't choose when or where we're going to die. 
You likewise don't choose to have a season of mourning. This is not how we divide up our life. I think I'll mourn for this season and then I'll move on to a different season, a joyful one over here. They're brought to you by various circumstances, often outside of your control. Even if you think of laughter, often it is spontaneous. And the joy of dancing even that that depicts. We can plan exciting events. Think of a wedding. You can plan uh, joyful occasions, parties. But even then, often the ability to rejoice in that moment is sometimes outside of our control. How often have you planned something you anticipate to be a great time and a, a joyful season or event or occasion, and it just turns out to not be what you had hoped it to be? Even something like planting. We might choose to get out and and plant in the garden. But we don't choose the fact that spring is the time to do that. We do it in spring because that's when you do it. If you want the most out of your task. If a farmer wants a good crop, he gets out during spring and he seeds. We don't choose that. It's just the way it is. We've just recognized and learned that that's how this world works. Likewise, there's a time to speak and a time to not speak. We might have a hard time knowing which one we're in, discerning which is the correct way to go, but it doesn't change the fact that we find ourselves in positions where only one of those is really quite appropriate. Again, in circumstances we find ourselves in, what someone else does or says or whatever that dictates if or what we should say in response. There are indeed many different seasons to our lives under heaven. And much of it is out of our control. And in this way, in the context, I think of Ecclesiastes, the consideration of these seasons begins to be somewhat oppressive. And so verses 1 to 8 are not meant uh, to just stand on their own. Uh, The verses that follow, they build off of these verses 1 to 8. They build off of this poetry and reflect on it. So this begins in verse 9, where we see the desire for more. The desire for more. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with with all the seasons that come and go and where we've come in, in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon is still asking this question. He's still raising this question of what, what does the worker gain at the end of it all at the end of the day? What return is there for laboring through all of this, through all of these seasons? And then verse 10, when he talks about the business God has given to man, the children of man, this is very similar almost word for word from what we saw back in chapter one and verse 13 there. He said, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And we noted back when we were in chapter one, that he is seeking out there Solomon the meaning and significance of all that is done under heaven, of all the different works that man does, of everything that goes on. He's looking for a fuller 
understanding of all that goes on, a desire he has to grasp the significance of it all, that he might determine the return for one's labor, have answers to this. And he begins to draw some conclusions here. Verse 11. He, referring to God, of course, has made everything beautiful in its time. So here's the first explicit reference uh, to God's sovereignty over these seasons of life. And he's going to develop this more as we will see that as we get into verse 14. For now, he acknowledges that ultimately God is the one who is working a grander picture that we cannot ultimately grasp. God has his reasons for everything under the sun, though we cannot see it. The times of verses 1 to 8 are being arranged in a way that he describes as beautiful. They're right. They're good. He's moving things, God is, towards an appointed end. Somehow he is working all of this out to be, ultimately at the end, a good thing that will reveal his glory. And his greatness. And Solomon continues. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Solomon continues. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The sovereign God has implanted into mankind. A sense of forever. A yearning for a fuller grasp. Ultimate significance. A sense that there's got to be more to this than what we see than just this now this is not equally expressed in every individual but it is there solomon tells us god has put this into the heart of man a sense of eternity a sense of forever and yet this yearning is such that man cannot find out what god has done from the beginning to the end so it's a yearning That is intentionally frustrated. Man cannot figure out all that God is up to and all that he has done from the beginning to the end. The picture of it all is ultimately beyond us. Derek Kidner writes this in his commentary. He says, we are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us. For we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from beginning to end. We cannot see and grasp all of God's ways and how everything fits together and how everything will fit together and resolve in the end. Interestingly, now, many years after Solomon, after The Messiah has come, the New Testament being written and delivered to us. We do know more of the big picture of of what God is doing. We have the, the fuller revelation of the rest of Scripture. It even includes with us a book, as difficult as Revelation is. We have a book that tells us how this will end. But nevertheless, we still, we still don't have the ability to find out all of God's ways, how he is working all things together for some sort of good. We just can't see how everything resolves. 
We don't understand everything. And so I think this, this leads then to the third point, so important for us to grasp, which is the rightful place of man. In light of all this, if this is ultimately beyond us, what do we do? What does man do? Do we despair? Is that the logical conclusion? Verse 12 says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toils. Toil. This is God's gift to man. This is basically a repetition and uh, an expansion of what we saw last week at the end of chapter 2. Some people read verse 12 and uh, take it to be negative. Take it, read it as if it's being cynical or as if Solomon's being defeatist, as if he's just saying, well, you know, there's really nothing better, so we'll just do this. But it's better to view this really as a positive statement. The language need not be taken as negative. Plus, if you look at the end of verse 13, it says that these things are God's gift to man. This is not just resign yourself to, you know, whatever, nothing. It's a gift. This is actually what God desires for his creatures to do. So he mentions being joyful and doing good as long as you live. Now, this is not saying that one is justified by works. Uh, One cannot do good apart from faith. Faith is very much implied here. And the reality is that being justified by faith alone brings about a renewal in the person who is justified. A renewal after the image of Christ involves a new heart that leads to a transformed life. A person who seeks after the things of the Lord, desires to keep his commands, and does good. We are not, we cannot be justified by our works, our best deeds. Isaiah is clear, our filthy rags. Our sins are simply too great before God's matchless holiness. So God sent his son Jesus to justify sinners. By earning a righteousness on behalf of sinners and dying for their sins. His resurrection has secured this justification for all who trust in him. And so your hope of being forgiven, of being in right standing with God is not through doing works, but is through Christ. That's your hope. Your faith in Christ Jesus. It ought to be your hope. It is only such those who are trusting in the Lord and are born again who can truly do good throughout our days. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And justification by faith is not simply a New Testament teaching, New Testament reality. As we mentioned last week, Old Testament saints likewise were justified by faith. Abraham in Genesis 15 says that he believed God and it was counted to him or credited. It was imputed to him as righteousness. The Old Testament saints were looking ahead, trusting God and his promise to save. 
So man's rightful place, as we looked at last week as well, is rejoicing, is doing good, is eating, drinking, and enjoying work. That is, we are to receive these things as the good gifts of life that God has given. The good things in life are gifts from him, from his hand, as it said last week at the end of chapter 2. And as so far as we are able, we're told to enjoy these things, to joyously engage in them. I think in that category of doing good, we ought to put in there the worship of God. All of this, as he says here, is God's gift to man. And so it is good then to be contented with this. Because it's what God has given us. The understanding of the big picture, how God is working every detail out. Understanding the large puzzle and every all of its intimate details. This is not your place. This is not our place to grasp all of this. Obviously, clearly, there is more to all of this. Solomon knows that. Eternity is planted in the heart of man. There's more to all of this. There's a big picture. There are reasons why things happen. But ultimately, this is God's domain. It is his area. He rules. He knows everything in all of its fullness. And this is not your place. It's not my place. Again, we think of something like suffering. There are reasons that the Bible gives us as to why we suffer. We know ultimately it's because of sin and the sin-cursed world. But then again, you try to get down to why does one person suffer in a particularly grievous way while another does not. And this is that area where we we have to back out, that we, we can't figure all those details out. This is God's domain. So this is a call then to trust the Lord, to rest here, to rest in him, in his sovereignty. To embrace your place within his bigger picture, recognizing that ultimately the big picture is his territory. So there's, there comes a point then where you need to stop torturing yourself with the why questions and to leave it in his hands, to trust him with it, and to move on to the things that he has given you as gifts to you, eating, working, drinking, family, doing good. None of us understands every detail about our world. We don't know why exactly everything's happening the way it is. We don't know exactly how everything is going to play out over the next several years. It is good to study things, to try to understand as much as we can, to give consideration to it, but important to know your limits as well and to be free to walk away, to go to work, to focus on it, to spend time with your kids, your family, to enjoy your meal with them and so on, to go help someone out. 
to pick up a book to, to relax for a second because it's God's world. And you're not going to know everything there is to know. Nobody can live under that weight. So it's the rightful place of man, but then finally the rightful place of God. He picks up on this again. In verse 14, Solomon writes, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. He returns to the sovereignty of God. God is the one who performs truly enduring tasks and work. And when he acts, nobody can stop him. Nobody can question him. Nobody can stay his hand. Nobody tells him what to do. Nobody can undo it. No one can take it away. As he says, God has done it. This is not some random force called fate. It is God Almighty. We might ask, well, why? Why would God work in this way? Why not just reveal everything to us and take away the mystery and then there won't be such confusion anywhere? Well, I think he answers that for us. He says, God has done it so that people fear before him. God has not made humans equal to himself. That's a a blasphemous thought even. The Almighty has no rivals. And this inability for us to grasp all that goes on under the sun and put it all together and find the meaning in everything, despite our God-given sense of eternity and desire for more, this inability is one of the ways that God has intentionally Designed things, Solomon is saying, so that we might grasp something of who he is. That our finiteness might be comprehended and then something of his infiniteness grasped when we are told that it is God who who is the one with full understanding. And he is the one who makes everything beautiful in its time. And we really can't quite fathom how that can be. How he's going to work everything out for his glory. Yet this, according according to the Bible, this is precisely what he is doing and will do. Our problem with God's sovereignty is not that the Bible is not clear on the matter. It's that we have trouble getting our head our heads around how that could be, how a being like that could exist, how he could be so great, how that could be compatible with the fact that you and I make decisions in our lives. How can God do this and be holy when there's sin in the world? How can he be working this out in some way that could be said by Solomon to be beautiful in his time? How can he be working some master plan? This is, this is who God is. This is why when we struggle with the sovereignty of God, we just usually don't have a high enough view of who God is. 
He really is unlike anything else in creation. He's outside of it. And so it's right then that we wouldn't understand everything. That yes, it's possible for the almighty creator of everything to be working all things out for his purposes, despite the chaos that we see from our vantage point, despite the difficulties that we find. And we would say, well, I decided to eat toast today. Therefore, God can't be sovereign. Solomon's aware of this. God is the sovereign. It's designed this way that we might be in awe. So that people might fear him. That we might step back. And recognize again something of the difference between us and God. Between the creature and the creator. And then worship him. To silence our mouths and our questioning. And be content with that which he has given for us to do. Verse 15 says, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The first part of verse 15 is very similar to what we read back in chapter 1 verse 9. Where it says, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. The difference between what he says in chapter 1 and now the context of chapter 3, the difference, as Philip Ryken points out, is that chapter 3 explicitly puts everything under the sovereignty of God. Thus, the book is helping us make progress in understanding the universe. The things that are outside of our control should not cause us to despair, but to hope in God who is sovereign over everything that happens. The last line of verse 15, where he says, God seeks what has been driven away. This is a difficult phrase to interpret. Maybe the most common uh, understanding of this line is that it is a poetic way of talking about the past. That is Solomon's way of saying that what seems to us to be lost forever in the past, of what has been done in the past, seems to be gone, lost forever, swept away by time, is not in fact lost to God. Rather, he will reach back into the past, so to speak, grab it, pull it forward for the purpose of judgment. That he's saying he's going to bring former deeds into judgment. This may well be what Solomon is intending. He certainly says as much later on in the book. And so perhaps this is a somewhat uh, poetic, cryptic way of saying now what he's going to make clearer later on about God ultimately bringing all of his creatures into judgment. So again, this all reveals God to be the sovereign in the universe. He is the one whose acts endure forever whose hand cannot be stopped by man, 
or any being who is making everything beautiful in its time. He is the one to whom time is no obstacle or deterrent. This tyranny of time we've seen, seasons coming and going, generations passing away and rising up and on with the cycles. To, 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 to God, this is not an issue. Again, this is why it is right to fear him, to stand in awe before him, to trust him, to seek mercy from him, to rest in his provision for your sins, and then to rest all of your concerns by casting your worry and your fret before him. Recognizing that nothing escapes him, that all will be held to account, that he is, as he promises to believers, working all things for your good, ultimately. How can that be? You may not know right now, but that's God's territory. There is kindness in these verses for those trusting in the Lord, and there is a severity and warning here for those who are not. Again, Derek Kidner writes this. He says, the earthbound man, in the light of our verses 14 and 15, and of this whole section, is the prisoner of a system he cannot break or even bend, and behind it is God. There is no escape and nowhere to jettison what encumbers or incriminates him. But the man of God hears these verses with no such misgivings. To him, verse 14 describes the divine faithfulness, which makes the fear of God a fruitful, filial relationship. And verse 15 assures him that with God, all is foreknown and nothing is overlooked. God has no abortive enterprises nor forgotten men. So it's important to know your place. And to know God's place. He is the sovereign. And he is good. And trusting him. Submitting to the place that he has assigned you in life. Will free you from so much angst. And free you to receive the gifts that he has given to you. You might serve him with them. It will free you to live in the station that he has placed you with a calmness and and even a, a gratitude. So various seasons of life come our way, much of it inexplainable to us beyond our understanding, outside of our control. Yet behind it all stands the creator whose ways are immutable. Coming to grips with our finiteness and God's sovereignty frees you to live your life as God intends in the fear of him. Let's pray.